This podcast is for your entertainment only and is not the place to find professional medical advice. Today on the podcast, we have brought Chronic Hope's own founder, Jamie Emerson. Hey, so, Jamie, hey. how's your week been? Yeah, it's been good. It's been a really crazy week. I have a lot going on with uni, and so this week has been taking things off my plate and saying no mm-hmm. to people, which <laughs> is not always easy, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, like with every guest that we bring on to the podcast, we like to start off with uh, sharing our pet peeves. So, Jamie, what is your pet peeve? Yes, I haven't actually shared this one yet. So I have the randomest pet peeve. And a lot of them are random, but I actually can't handle straws that are too long. Straws that are too long? Yeah. Like, so, for example, if you have, like, a drink, it can only be, like, the straw has to be a certain amount of height above the drink. Yeah, the ratio has to be perfect. The ratio has to be perfect. It has to be, like... Like, if you take the height, include the height of the straw and the cup, Mm -hmm. the cup is, like, two-thirds, and the straw is maximum one-third. Okay, I see what you mean, yeah. Like, because otherwise it's too much, and then, I don't know, it just, the straw, you, like, end up shoving it in your face accidentally, (laughs) like, I just can't handle it. Or the straw slips out of the cup. Yeah, because it's too high. It's too high, yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's disproportionate. I I can't under, I can't deal. (laughs) Well, going on that... Paper straws or plastic straws? Uh, this is a controversial one because if I say paper, then I'm like pro-environment. Yeah. But if I say plastic, a... I prefer plastic. It's like, then I like don't like the environment. Yeah. Probably a... like, I respect paper straws. Mm-hmm. I prefer to drink out of pl- plastic straw, but I actually just prefer not to drink out of a straw the majority of the time. Good so, point. Save the environment, don't use a straw? Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I don't know. That's how I feel <laughs> about that. It's the randomest thing. So, moving on. Recently in our Instagram, we've gained a lot of new followers. And a lot of them have been asking for your recovery journey from CFS. Now, before we go into your actual recovery, why don't you take us back a little and go into how you got diagnosed with CFS, Yeah. what was happening at the time, and yeah. yeah, I mean, I think going back to what you're saying about people asking me, and I mentioned this on our Instagram post that I've been hesitant to kind of share my journey just because I don't, my journey is different than someone else's journey, right? And I mm-hmm. never want to come across as I'm sharing this because this is the pathway to recovery for you, or you know, everybody's on their own path, and I respect that. And Carnicope is about getting the people the resources they need, but not telling them that this is the right thing for them. Because they ultimately have to decide for themselves. So I think people have been asking and I'm like, okay, well, if that's like, like if that's how I can get back to the community, share my journey and maybe show people that it's actually possible to recover from chronic teaching yeah. and like, I want to do that. Um, and yeah, I think going back to like how I got diagnosed, it was, yeah, I think looking back, I was 23 when I got diagnosed. I'm 27 now. So it was about four years ago. Um, and looking back, like it doesn't surprise me now that I did get chronic fatigue syndrome because kind of the season leading up to getting chronic fatigue, I was living in France. 
I moved there when I was 19, so I spent my early 20s living in Paris, France. I was studying in foreign language, working, and volunteering a lot of my time with different projects. And I was essentially overdoing it. I was dealing with depression, living in a foreign country alone, away from people that like I'd grown up with, from totally different culture as well, where like French culture is very different to American culture. So then kind of, you know, struggling through university and the early 20s, the struggles that you go through as someone in your early 20s of confidence and insecurity and finding your identity and all of that. So it was, it, as much as I loved living in Paris, mm -hmm. it was a challenging time. And I also had anxiety. And so... You had a lot of your plate on your plate at that time. I had a lot of my plate, but I also... It was like the early days of bigger issues, internal emotional issues were yeah. starting to manifest themselves, right, in my life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So I realized I had depression um, about two years into it, started working on that, had to kind of take a step back from my studies and focus on my mental health. And then about nine months after that, six months after that, I went back to the US to visit my family. And while I was there, we got in a really bad car accident. And it was, it was very traumatizing in the sense of like, I, we were, there's five of us in the car, so my dad was driving, my mm -hmm. mom and my sisters were in the back seat, and I was in the front seat, because I get car sick, so they let me have the front seat, um, and we were going about like 70, 75 kilometers per hour, and about 45 um, miles per hour, and my dad blacked out while he was driving, just like, it was just this fluke thing, he'd never blacked out before, and I was in the front seat, and we literally swerved in front of this car on, in the oncoming lane, hit a ditch, flipped like three times or twice, landed on the side in a ditch. We also hit a telephone pole and almost knocked the telephone pole over. Oh, that's pretty bad. Big yeah, it was like the car was totaled. We we honestly should have died because it was that the accident was that bad, and I remember. When we land, I remember being entirely lucid the whole time. I saw it coming. I remember the moment we were sort of in limbo, spinning in the air, thinking, oh my gosh, this is happening. This is my, like a life flashing by your eyes moment, so. right? The airbag went off, there's glass everywhere. And when we landed, I was the only one that was lucid enough to respond. Oh, so you were pretty much the only one conscious enough to yeah. be aware of anything. Yes, so when we landed, there was dead silence in the car. And I'm getting like chills thinking about it because I literally thought in that moment that my whole family had died. And it was just a split second because then I heard noise in the back, right? And then I heard then my dad started moving next to me. And But I feel that something was taken away from me in that moment where I thought that my family had died, or it was like, and when you talk about trauma, actually, because yeah. I went through counseling, and we talked about this, and what actually happens is when you experience something traumatic, um, your brain, you're, you actually can't cope, and so your brain 
disconnects the emotion from the event. So you remember the event, but you don't necessarily feel the emotions. Right. Yeah. Because when something traumatic happens, so mm -hmm. when, when that moment in my brain happened, or that the accident happened, that's when the trauma happened, and yep. then something disconnected. So um, the emotions went from being sort of in my, I think it's called the frontal lobe, to my um, back here where like memories are stored, yeah. and you have to like reconnect them in order to process the event. And I never processed the event. Okay. So is it only recently that you've gone through and like resolved that trauma? Yeah, probably actually. It's um I think that there was a lot of like I I've been through a lot of other traumatic events. Like I've had a lot of other trauma in my life, so I think um there's they're all related, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think you deal with one and more comes up, but um I probably only dealt with it recently, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Continuing from there, that was the beginning of the chronic fatigue and chronic pain. So, I, we kind of went through that. Everyone was fine, except my mom broke her collarbone. So that was kind of a massive thing. But like, other than that, we were fairly unscathed. I had no visible in injuries. Mm -hmm. I had no visible injuries. And I, other than a concussion. Yep. And um, my sisters were pretty okay. We've all kind of had some back issues, but... About two months after that, I started, I went back to Paris about one, two weeks after the accident, and then I started getting chronic pain within a month or two, and chronic fatigue. Oh, really? Yeah. So those were, so was that a quick sort of diagnosis when you were in France, or was it sort of like a kind of question whether or not it was something else, or... Oh my gosh, my journey with doctors in France was exhausting and humiliating and <laughs> I mean, I love France, but the and this is like this with doctors in a lot of places. So it's True. nothing against France or doctors in general. It's just they don't always know how to in my experience they don't always know how to treat people with chronic conditions. So mm -hmm. I you know, I went to the doctor and I was like, Oh, I'm getting back pain and um this is happening and that's happening and they're like oh, you have depression, or oh, you need to go swim, and that will yeah. help you with your back pain, or um, here's some pain medication, or you need to do these exercises. And I mean, they did. I did get an MRI, and we checked to make sure structurally everything was fine, and it was. Um, but there was no, there was no um, diagnosis, and then it's like they treated me like I was crazy. Like that it was all in my head, that I had depression and that I just needed to deal with the depression. And so I think that, I mean, I remember there was a moment where I came out of the doctor's office and called a friend and it was like raining and I was under an umbrella and I just burst into tears and I was like, I don't know, like, they don't believe me and I know someone's wrong, something's wrong and I just can't, like, I just, it was so, this hard journey and... I took some time, I ended up having to take some time off work. I moved house to go live with some friends who put me up for two months. And I said to myself, like I, at that point I couldn't work anymore because I was in too much pain. I yeah. was working at a cafe. Um, I had pretty like, much life 
kind of comes to a halt then at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I moved on some thin with them, and I said to myself, I'm going to give it two months, and I'm going to rest, mm -hmm. and if I don't get better, I'm going to move back to the U.S. because I can't keep. Yeah. I can't support myself, I can't keep You need your in. support group, well, which is mainly your family, right? Yeah, I needed to live somewhere where I could, yeah, where I could live for free mm -hmm. and get some level of support. So, and also, like, I had medical insurance in the U.S. at yeah. the time, and I felt that in the U.S. I might get a little bit more understanding mm -hmm. about, um, what I was going through and finding the root cause and all of that because I think at the time chronic illness and these sorts of things were very much not on the radar for French doctors and more on the radar for American doctors. Okay, so when you did go go back to the US, was it a, a bit of an easier road then to a proper diagnosis? Yeah, so it was. I had lived in France for three years and I made the decision to move back within three weeks I had moved back to the US. It was pro it was actually probably the hardest decision I've ever made in my life because I didn't want to move back to America. I loved living in Paris. I had a support network which was amazing but there it wasn't the right thing to stay and so when I went back it was pretty much straight away I'm gonna figure out how to figure out what this is and figure out how to get better. Path to recovery, pretty much. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the path to recovery fully started when I got a diagnosis. Of course, yes. <laughs> you know? How can you recover from what you don't know, right? Yeah, exactly. It was, it was a very confusing time because, I mean, so many people have no awareness of chronic fatigue and, and it's probably more common now than it was even three or four years ago for people yeah. to know what it is. But um, yeah, so like even just talking to people and trying to explain to them like, I'm in so much pain. And at the time it was mostly back pain that I was dealing with, which caused some fatigue, but the chronic fatigue hadn't fully set in. So yeah, I went to the doctor and originally for my back pain, that's what the main goal was. And I saw a naturopath. Um, I'm so my hometown is Portland, Oregon. So I saw a naturopath in Portland, and we were talking about all my symptoms. And I really went for, to her for pain, but there was a point in our discussions where she said, "Jamie, I think you have chronic fatigue syndrome." Um, oh, so like she, she just she just brought it up. She yeah, she basically just gave me a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like. You know, like, I didn't know what it was, mm -hmm. and then I went home, and as you do, I googled, and I'm like, oh, oh yes, my gosh, I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> the scariest thing, I've no. the diagnosis into Google, and just reading weather me and all these other things, people's anecdotes, and oh gosh, it does get your heart pumping, doesn't it? Yeah, right, and that would have happened to you as well during your... Ah, yes, when I got diagnosed with um, a brain tumor and a movement disorder, and yeah, all yeah that. just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I went home, did all the research, and the, one of the first things that I read was because I was like, okay, what's the recovery rate? How do you recover? And 
it was basically everything I read was the recovery rate is five percent. Yeah. There's no hope. There's no options. Good luck. <laughs> like honestly, that's really what it was. And how did you react to that? Just reading all those facts and statistics. I think for me it was. Uh, I'm I can be a little bit rebellious in the sense of like if you tell me I can't do something, I'm gonna do it. Uh, yes. So when I read that, I was a little bit like, no, I don't accept that. I don't accept that that's going to be my reality for the mm -hmm. rest of my life. And I'm going to do everything I can to recover. And I'm going to make all of the sacrifices yeah. and try all of the treatments that I need to try. To become part of the 5%, right? Yes. I was so, I was like, I will be one of the 5%. That's it. There was no... For me, it was like not an option to not recover course, right. because I I don't know. I just, I've always, it's just, I have this determination, I guess. And so that's how I felt. It was really devastating, but it's also like, okay, now I know what I'm working with. And so I'm going to go online and read about the 5%. And I remember at the time there was like this super obscure website with like this dodgy like podcast link <laughs> of this guy that literally just got on the phone with different people from around the world and talked uh -huh. to them about their recovery from CFS. Oh really? Because there, at the time, like this was five, four or five years ago, there weren't podcasts about chronic illness. There weren't like Instagram support groups. Or, of course, like, right now only really surfaced recently in the past few years, yeah. right? Or maybe there wasn't, I just didn't find it, but um, I would sit there and listen on my computer and like listen to these stories of people recovering and just find that so empowering and hearing them and what they did and what I could potentially do, <laughs> that's what I think was a really massive motivator for me is like, even though like I knew that there wasn't a formula for recovery, I still don't think there is because everybody's journey is different. It was like, at least there was hope. Yeah. And I also, my doctor at the time, she was really confident that I was gonna recover. And she told me that I was gonna recover like in a fourth of the time that it took. She was like, oh yeah, you'll be recovered in six months or something. It took me three years. So. She, I think as well, her having that confidence that I was going to recover really helped me because it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. So yeah, in her confidence, you in turn had confidence as well that you would recover. Yeah. Uh, and I had a lot of health professionals tell me that too. They're like, oh, you're young, like it might take time, but you're going to bounce out of this and like you have everything going for you. Um, so I don't know, like I think that just because I'm young doesn't mean that you can't, like, people that are older yeah, than I was can't bounce out of it. So everyone's recovery journey is different, right? But in your own personal journey, what were some of the key things that really helped you get to where you are today? Yeah, I think, look, I think it was a combination of things. It was, and I think it always is, uh, like, maybe not always, often is, there's not one answer. Um, it's like a holistic view. I think for me it was I Changed my lifestyle completely. I went from being type A 
super uh, energetic, high-performing person to stuck in bed most of the day, barely being able to do anything, and really giving myself that space to rest, which was hard. It was really hard. And um, I, so, and when I say lifestyle change, I also mean like sleeping a certain amount, waking up every, I developed discipline in that Discipline and like yes. getting into routine. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And I think that that's actually something a big thing that I've carried into my life today is mm -hmm. this discipline and consistency because what I realized with the journey with chronic fatigue syndrome is it wasn't going to be an overnight fix yep. and that the small things added up were going to make the difference. So I did yoga every day. I changed my diet. I took supplements and I um, prayed and journaled and I didn't do meditation at the time. Mm -hmm. I also did whatever exercise I could and um, those it's a little things and then I would see my doctor and I did acupuncture and I did diet change and then treating I had um, a yeast infection in my gut and thrush which is like yeast infection but in your mouth a lot of babies get it which and it's very rare for adults to get it so it's really an indication that I had some serious gut issues so I was on medication for that a lot of it came down to my gut and whatever I ate. If I had to cut out dairy, I had to cut out gluten, soy, sugar, corn, beans, yep. um, almonds. Like I That's had a, a, a whole range of allergies. And well, not I wouldn't even say allergy. I would say intolerances. Yeah. And I don't have all of those intolerances today. I have been able to introduce some foods back in, but I still can't do dairy or gluten or sugar. So, um, taking all of those things out of my diet and then also getting tested for more gut issues, working on that and then just being consistent with um, sleep and I went on a paleo diet for a while that really helped me um, listening to my body, getting rest and then, yeah, and so I did all of those things and recovered to the point where I was able to move to Sydney, which was crazy because, you know, like, it's actually crazy to me thinking back because when I moved back to the U.S. from France, I've never, I've personally always wanted to live overseas. Like, I have ne not necessarily wanted to live in America, I wanted to yeah. live overseas, which is why I moved to France. So when I was moved back to the U.S., I knew already that I wanted to move to Sydney. And I was telling people. What made you, out of all <laughs> countries, I guess, to move to Sydney? Yeah. Why Australia, of all places, eh? Australia. Australia. Right. <laughs> okay, so Sydney. I went to Sydney when I was 19 on holiday. Oh, so you've been here before? Yeah, I've been here before. We took a cruise out of Sydney Harbor to New Zealand and back. Oh, okay. And so you weren't really in Sydney that much. No, I wasn't. But this is the crazy part. For those of you that don't know Sydney, we stayed in a hostel or a hotel in Redfern, which is sort of like this, especially 10 years ago, would have been like this seedy oh, yeah. area of Sydney. Um, 
And we went to this cat this brunch place and this cafe and I fell in love with Sydney. Just it was like so in Redford. <laughs> and we also spent some time in the harbor and opera house yeah. and the usual sites. Yeah, but then I spent two weeks on a cruise with a bunch of Australians. Ah, and is that where they really? That's what really like really drew you. I started loving Australian culture, and just the accent and the vibes, <laughs> the and, accent, you know, like, and so I I loved it. And then I remember thinking to myself, I would love, I would live here. I want to, I would love to live here one day. But I had literally already booked my flight to move to France. So and I had. Everything set up there, so uh, I went back to the US, was there for a week and moved to France. So it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. But when, again, when I moved back to the US, I knew that I didn't want to stay there. I also knew that going back to France wasn't necessarily a healthy option just because I think um, culturally, as much as I love it, it wasn't like the best fit for me and my personality. Fair enough. Right, yeah. um, so that's why I decided I've and I just felt, and I don't know if like people listening have this sometimes, I'm the type of person that I just get these gut feelings, and I just get this like, something inside of me tells me that it's the right thing, and no one can convince me otherwise. And that's a little bit how Sydney was for me. Well, you know what they say, trust your gut, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I remember having discussions with my sister <laughs> where she was like, why are you moving to Sydney? And I was like, it's just like... The right thing and, and or people being like how are you gonna move to Sydney you're sick you have chronic fatigue syndrome and I just remember saying I'm gonna move to Sydney I'm gonna recover and I'm mm -hmm. gonna move to Sydney because that's where I'm meant to be and that's where you are now yeah <laughs> look at me now <laughs> three years later um, but and it's just funny thinking about it because when I moved here I still had chronic fatigue syndrome and there were moments where I I doubted a lot whether or not it was a good idea because it could have gone either way. I could have crashed mm -hmm. or I obviously went the right way because I ended up yeah. recovering while I was here and all of that. But it was a massive risk to be moving on the other side of the world. I, I had zero friends here. I didn't have a place to live and I didn't have a job. So I rocked up to Sydney, stayed in an Airbnb for the first three weeks, and within a month I had all of those things. Oh, yeah, lucky. yeah, I'm very fortunate. And so I think that for me, moving to Sydney has been the best decision that I've ever made for myself. It's, I feel like the, the, the good season of my life started here. And because uh, prior to moving here, I mean, I dealt with a lot of anxiety, depression. Um, I think because I was homeschooled, I didn't have that group of friends and I didn't belong. Right, yeah. And I always felt like an outsider and not good enough and all of these things. And when I came here, I was became part of a church here and I be, started to build friends who genuinely accepted me. I felt like I belonged for the first time. I was shown kindness and love and people put value on me and this is the first time that I've really felt that so I I think that 
Sydney was really the beginning of, it was the beginning of my recovery journey for chronic fatigue. Well, not the beginning. It was like the beginning of the end of my recovery journey, I guess. So you say Sydney was the last leg, so to speak, of your recovery journey, right? Yeah. So what were, what were some other things that really pushed you to the finish line? Look, I think when I moved here, I was well enough to work full time, which was really good, but still not, I was probably about like 70% recovered. Um, and I was that way for the first year. And I, what did it, what was unexpected, but really helpful for me is, um, so I was in a relationship kind of six months after I arrived we broke up and then all of these things inside of me started to come out all of this pain anxiety etc etc and I started going to counseling because I was in a really bad place in terms of my mental health like really bad there'd be moments where I would like call someone and I would well specifically my sister and I was like I don't actually know how I'm gonna get through the rest of this day it's it was so bad and I didn't know why yeah and um, so I started going to counseling and I realized through counseling that I had never actually been in touch with my emotions before I had never actually let my self I had never actually let myself feel this the disappointment or the sadness or the you know, or the the feelings, or the anger, or mm-hmm. all of these. I'm trying to think of the feelings, like sadness, disappointment, anger, joy, joy like even really? just like wow. feeling feelings. Yeah. Because I grew up in an environment where feelings were you had to. Unless feelings were logical, they were uh, invalid. Unless there was a logical reason to feel a feeling, they were invalid. Yes. So that's the environment that I grew up in. So I would learn to logically think through my feelings and then Mm -hmm. dismiss them. Okay. So you would kind of compartmentalize them in a way when they're just like, okay, that's not really, let's just put it in the back burner for now. Yeah, exactly. So, or telling my feelings that they're not like true or they're not except you can't do that with feelings they're feelings yeah they're feelings (laughs) they need to be false (laughs) they're not like you can't be like you're you're a not true feeling like (laughs) that's not you can say that about a fact but (laughs) you can't say that about a feeling because your feelings it's just it is what it is and for the first time i reconnected with my feelings, I reconnected with the disappointment of having a chronic illness. I reconnected with the sadness of, um, of losing my hopes, my dreams. I reconnected with the disappointment of getting in a car accident and the trauma of that. And I cried for two months straight. That's le- legitimate. I just, I, cr- I remember there were moments where I was laying on the floor just bawling in my bedroom just like and all it was is like I'm sad because I got in a car accident and my life changed from that moment I'm sad because 
I lost control. I'm sad because I had to move back from France. I'm sad. Like, it was just... It was just like the culmination of those emotions, really, right? Yeah, and it was the first time that I let, gave myself space to feel. And I physically felt, as I was crying, healing happened inside of my body. Like, I remember I would cry for like a minute, like a while, actually. And I would experience an a lo immediate level of relief from my back pain, for example. Wow. Or, because I got a lot of anxiety, right? And I realized that the anxiety was actually an indication that there was an emotion that had left unprocessed. Mm -hmm. So that was such a revelation for me because I had never understood the mind-body correlation before. Um, whereas I think even in the community now, people are really starting to... This is common common knowledge. Common knowledge these days, right? The connection uh, between the physical yeah. and like the mental, yeah. the emotional. So when about after two months of this counseling journey, I felt significantly better from my symptoms. And then within maybe six months after that, I was recovered from chronic fatigue syndrome. That's amazing. Which is like crazy. Yeah. Because I did, I just didn't expect that. It I I just it was I knew that I was on the path to recovery, but yeah. I didn't expect that to be like the final yeah like the climax. Of yes, it exactly. And people are like, well, how do you know you're recovered? And I know I'm recovered because I don't get this symptom that I used to get called post-exertion malaise, where essentially if you overexert yourself, then mm -hmm. you kind of experience this massive crash. I get normal tired. I think we yep. all normal people have some level of crash if they're like doing a lot mm -hmm. or whatever, where you like, oh, I've been doing a lot this week, so I need to take an apple on Sunday. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was really weird <laughs> in a good way, <laughs> but it was also gradual, so it was less weird. You know what it was? I had to learn how, what it was like to be tired like a normal person oh really yeah because i forgot and even in like because i'll have like i would have a big week right and then i'd be super tired on the weekend and then i'd be like oh my gosh i'm relapsing into chronic fatigue syndrome but then i talk to people and they're like no like normal people get tired too like this is normal yeah same level of tiredness as everyone else right and so i had to train myself out of this fear and anxiety of crashing yeah. because i had it was like I constantly had this fear that I was going to go back into it, go back into chronic fatigue syndrome. So um, I don't have that anymore, thankfully. It took me a little while to get out of it and um, figure out what normal tired looked like, figure out how much rest I need and how much stuff I can do. And yep. even now, I still like, I still get days where like I'm anxious, I'm feeling certain emotions, I don't process them, and I'm exhausted at the Already. end of the day wow. and it feels a little bit like when I had chronic fatigue syndrome but I also know that this is because I'm suppressing my emotions <laughs> it's all the weight the emotional yeah. weight um, sometimes I wish that I like wasn't as emotional as I am but I find that I'm very I have a lot of emotions that uh, I have to deal with on a regular basis yeah. so. so once you fully recovered from chronic fatigue what was like what was the next step for you then 
Yeah, I think the next step for me kind of happened as I was recovering because I started Chronic Hope because I I was recovered enough to do something to try to like step into a new phase of my life and mm-hmm. either study or kind of think more about what I wanted in terms of a career. Yeah. So I started Chronic Hope when I still had chronic fatigue syndrome, but it evolved. I recovered during my first year of working on Chronic Hope, which was really cool. Um, so it was interesting. So I started Chronic Hope before I recovered, but it has evolved. But I've been able to do more now that I've recovered, which has been really awesome. Yeah, so the next step I think for me was just continuing building Chronic Hope and also studying. I was re- ready, when I recovered from CFS, I was ready to study again because I had stopped studying while I was in France yeah. because I got sick and I knew that I wanted to get a degree by the time I was 30, mm-hmm. 27 now, so I started studying a bachelor's in information technology because I want to get in the tech space and have a degree by the time I'm 30. Yeah. So, and also it's been such a crazy thing even just, I think, Stepping into what I felt like I was meant to do coming to Sydney. Yeah. There has been so much blessing in my life. It's literally crazy the amount of blessing and the amount of good things that have happened since I've come here in terms of like just the type of work I've been doing, which is the job that I currently have working in the university, getting paid mm-hmm. super well, the friendships the team that I'm working with with Chronic Hope, and then also I got a full tuition scholarship to study my degree in Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty good. It's, it's massive. Amazing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the type of thing that every American dreams of because- <laughs> Of course, right, Because, yes. like, university yeah. is so expensive, expensive. In, in America, and also as an American coming to Australia, it's still very expensive. Mm-hmm. So, it's almost like I feel like in that moment, my life moving to sydney changed my life from the narrative of i grew up in a like lower middle class rural white american family to now i have the prospect of coming out of university and having no student loan debt and being able to step into Mm -hmm. my future life my future career without the weight of debt without with just essentially like clean slate. Clean slate. And that yeah. for someone from my background, that's massive. So Sydney has been it's and we are actually I was actually talking with someone earlier about this, but it's like oh I lost I felt like I lost three three years of my life to chronic fatigue syndrome, but what's happened in Sydney, the blessing that's come in Sydney me in Sydney has more than made up for that it's like it's almost like it's been redeemed and and then some right I know and I've cramped all of like the good things of that usually maybe happen in a span of six years yes six five years three that's amazing and it's like it's like a redemption story I feel it's a redemption arc of your book of Jamie Emerson yeah (laughs) and tale of Jamie Jamie the tale of Jamie Emerson (laughs) There's a ring and <laughs> a dark lord. And a dark lord. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's been, 
been amazing. I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful to be where I'm at now and that's why I'm so determined to do everything I can to give a voice to people that don't have a voice, that don't have the energy that I have, yeah. that haven't recovered yet, that may not be ever able to recover because some of their conditions are too severe stuff and stuff and giving a voice to that and also communicating that that doesn't make like having a chronic condition having health issues doesn't make anyone any less than anyone else it just means that we have to live life differently yeah. and i'm still on that journey i have chronic pain that i'm working through i've been having an ankle issue for about a year i haven't been able to walk properly for a year and i'm i'm dealing with that and the journey will continue, but Chronic Hope and what we're doing through Chronic Hope, it's my way of giving back and being like, okay, this gift was given to me, or this, this is the outcome of my chronic illness, what could I do? It's your way of paying it forward, right? Yeah, this is the outcome of my chronic illness, what can I do to help other people that can't do the the same or that haven't been able to reach the same level of recovery as me. Of course, giving them a platform, giving them a voice, that's... Giving, yeah, and offering resources and, you know, like there's so much that we could be doing for the community. Yeah. There's so... This community, unfortunately, is marginalized and not hurt and not appreciated, especially in this season of COVID-19 where People are like, oh, it's you know, only people with pre-existing conditions are affected, and it's not just, and it's just people that over the age of sixty-five or seventy, mm -hmm. and it's like, no, like you don't understand. There's young people with autoimmune conditions, like, and the blatant, almost like, disregard for that. Yeah. And it's just so sad to me because, like, if you look at the rates of the statistics around chronic illness specifically in America, for example, seven out of 10 Americans have a chronic condition. So this includes anxiety, depression, cancer, arthritis, chronic fatigue. That's pretty more than half of the population. More than half, it's a big percentage. That means it's normal to have a chronic condition. So why is it stigmatized? Why aren't our voices heard? Why are we not getting the resources we need? Why did I have to go thousands of dollars in debt mm -hmm. for medical expenses just to maintain and recover from chronic illness and this is what this I mean it's chronic hope is just a small organization but it's like I want to dedicate my life to making life better for marginalized communities or people that are ill people that are that are in poverty people that women um ethnic minorities except like it's just I have such a heart for helping people because I know that I've suffered and I hate seeing other people suffer as well. Yeah, of course. You don't want to see people in pain, people having trouble. You want to you want to be able to lift them up to where you are, right? Where you're not suffering, where you're not in pain, where you're, you know, being able to live your best life. Yeah, but it's not even just where you're not suffering or you're not in pain because I think it's a normal thing, part of life, to su suffer and be in pain. Like, not life is not really for everyone 100% mm -hmm. of the time, but you do... If you are going through something difficult, or if you do have pain, being able to live well while having that pain, being able to 
still have joy and and happiness and not feel like you're less than or not feel guilty. You know what I mean? It's because the truth is, is I have chronic pain, right? So there's moments when I'm studying and my neck hurts so bad, but I'm pushing through because I have to finish my assessment. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, like I'm in a lot of pain and I have to treat the pain. Yeah. So there's times where I have to push through. I mean, I've been also wearing a wrist brace for the last year because I get wrist pain when I use a mouse. So I'm pushing through these things because I ultimately need to study or I need to work and all of that. But that doesn't make mean that I'm not in pain. I'm yeah. just pushing through. For our community, what recommendations do you have? In terms of, say, books, music, podcasts? Anything that you could recommend for listeners out there? Uh, yeah, look, I, there's a couple of accounts that I'm, Instagram accounts that I love following. One of them is um, Mr. Kaleidos Crohn's, and he has a stoma bag and raises awareness around um, colitis and, like, stoma bags. And I don't know all of the vocabulary around that, but he's so good, like, just raising awareness for that community. And another... Um, account that I really like is chronically.court on Instagram. She's, I don't even know where, she's from the US and she's so positive. Like every time you look at her profile, she has so much joy and she's obviously struggling and living with some severe chronic health issues. But, and it's, I know it's not easy for her all the time, but you can tell that she just has this joy in life. And it's just like, I want to be the type of person that even though I'm in pain, I can exude joy and and peace and be the person that brings other people joy as well. Um, in terms of, I don't know, like a series, like I've, <laughs> I've watched this series recently called Selling Sunset on Netflix. It's not Spoonie related, but well, it's would you like, recommend? I would definitely recommend Definitely recommend? It. It's like, like Everybody, it's like reality TV, guilty pleasure. Ah, like, oh, of course. Yes. Everybody loves those. Yes, exactly. Um, and then, I, you know, I don't have, like, a lot of recommendations in terms of, like, spoony books. Because I haven't, to be honest, read a lot of those. I read a lot of fantasy books, to be honest. What's your favorite and, series? Or what are you reading at the moment? Um, my favorite series is, well, so what I've just finished was a, a series by Robin Hobb called um, The Live Ship Trader series, I think that that's what it's called. And it was really good, total like fantasy geek, which is kind of weird, like it's kind of weird to admit, but I love myself, so. Everyone's got an inner geek. Yeah. Everyone. So, um, and then also on Instagram, I really love funny, following funny people. So this there's this girl based in Africa called Elsa Majimbo, and she has the funniest, she's, She's like a comedian that posts like reels and videos, um, and she exploded during the pandemic. So I definitely recommend following her. She's so funny, and it's a little bit satirical. So those are my recommendations. All right, we'll make sure to link all of Jamie's recommendations in our show notes. And Jamie, thanks for being the interviewee this time. Yeah, it's been interesting. Thanks for, thanks for interviewing me.
Thanks for listening to the Sound of Hope podcast. If you want access to show notes, go to chronichope.org, where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. And make sure to follow us on our Instagram, at chronic underscore hope. See you next week. Oh, yeah.